This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good afternoon and welcome to the Thanksgiving Eye on the Market podcast, which I am recording from my basement. I will explain that later. Um, so our reflation outlook for the U.S. and Europe is alive and well. Uh, some leading indicators have come down in large part because of a lot of the bottleneck and supply chain issues. Some of those issues are still elevated, but we're starting to see the horizon loosening up a little bit. We expect semiconductor production for automobiles specifically to double by next summer. Uh, eastbound freight rates, which we've been talking about since September, are finally coming down. Big decline in the Baltic dry index of shipping costs. We expect around 2 million people in the U.S. that had left the labor force to return to the labor force. Obviously smaller than the number of total people that left, but a meaningful bump. And, and just as importantly, uh, vaccination rates are now over 60 and 70 percent in Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, um, and we're starting to hear of falling backlogs and rising factory utilization rates in Asia as some of these vaccination rates rise, and specifically as, as they rise increasingly based on mRNA vaccines instead of the Chinese ones. So as the supply shortages eventually dissipate, inventory levels will get rebuilt from low levels, and then early next year we should see a boost to U.S. and European GDP. I think that's one of the reasons why the markets over the last couple of months have been looking through some of these supply chain shortages uh, and instead um, focusing on what looks like uh, a pretty decent reflationary environment early next year. Despite some of all these supply constraints, the U.S. and European firms have posted another very good quarter of high margins, earnings, and sales relative to expectations. And on top of that, it's hard to say because the reconciliation bill in the U.S. still is being negotiated, but it looks like the top statutory corporate tax rate will not rise, and instead we'll see increases in taxes on foreign income, a 15% minimum book tax, and a small stock buyback tax. If you bake all the numbers in, it looks like about a 3 to 4% earning hit for the tech sector, which is pretty profitable, and just a 1% to 1.5% earnings hit for the other sectors. So... Um, Bottom line is a lot smaller of a tax freight hit than it would otherwise have been. Now, U.S. labor shortages, on the other hand, unlike the good shortages, are going to persist. The U.S. has one of the largest unvaccinated populations in the developed world. COVID drove a big surge in retirement. And we've had an immigration pause here that's pretty substantial over the last couple of years. And as a result, if you look at the small business data, more companies are talking about raising prices and worker compensation in 30, 40 years. Um, it doesn't tell you necessarily the magnitude, but it tells you about the, the, the frequency with which it's happening. So there are some mini wage price spiral risks that are here um, as a challenge to the Fed. Their whole inflation transitory stance seems more and more implausible each month. Uh, with respect to demand, which is holding up well in the West, China's the outlier. China's got a demand shortfall because of a combination of energy constraints, a regulatory purge, uh, only a modest easing of monetary and fiscal policy, and some very strict COVID protocols. But the bottom line here is that um, we are seeing some visibility on these supply chain issues, and we expect a, 
bouncing everything early next year, wages, prices, nominal GDP, etc. So the Thanksgiving eye on the market is usually when I talk about a topic uh, that people can discuss over holiday dinners. Um, the topic I wanted to write about, I can't write about. Until this year, I had, I had never run into a topic I couldn't write about, and the firm's been very supportive of me writing about anything affecting markets, economics, growth. It was all fair game. And there's a lot of controversial topics that show up in the Eye on the Market archives since we launched it in 2003. But for the first time, I've run into something that I don't think I can write about. Uh, and my guess is that you know exactly what topic I'm referring to and what my particular opinion about that topic is. Anyway, here's a different topic that's interesting that, that I can discuss. There are some really strange things going on in energy markets. Uh, Massachusetts, California, Europe, China all provide different cautionary tales. And if there's a common denominator here, uh, they're all the byproduct of a 30 to 40% decline in investment in energy, metals, mining, and other energy-intensive industries. And I think for, for everybody that's, that's focused on the decarbonization process, um, if you reduce the supply of fossil fuels faster than you reduce the demand for them, you're going to just end up with a combination of higher energy prices, more energy dependence on other places, and inadequate domestic supplies that can sometimes lead to power rationing of homes and businesses. And so I know there's this intense focus on, on pressuring banks and institutional investors to starve certain industries of capital. If that process goes faster than the process by which um, primary energy reduce, consumption reduces reliance on oil and gas, you're going to end up with one leg moving faster than the other, and you're going to end up with some issues. Um, we have a chart in here that shows energy dependence by region for the U.S., Europe, and China. Um, the U.S. is much less energy dependent on the rest of the world um, than Europe and China are, for sure. Uh, but that could change. And we walk through some of the issues here in Massachusetts. Um, NIMBYism continues to kill decarbonization. Northeastern liberals love decarbonization, but not if it comes at the expense of high-voltage direct current lines to bring hydropower in from Quebec. Um, California has having rolling blackouts from time to time, even before the state decommissions a couple of gigawatts of nuclear and a couple of gigawatts of natural gas. Um, Europe is facing a very long, difficult winter. Uh, natural gas supplies are 10 to 20% below normal, and Russia is only offering a token amount of help to alleviate that crunch. And then you've got the whole energy crisis complex energy crisis in China, which is complex, uh, but which has to do uh, a lot with its cutting both the supply of coal faster than they can decrease the demand for it. So there's a chart in here, for example, showing how Europe imports around as much oil and gas from Russia as it produces for itself. The, 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 that is a very unenviable economic and geopolitical position to be in. Uh, the U.S., of course, doesn't face anything like that. But again, mounting pressure on investors and lenders to starve the U.S. oil and gas industry of capital um, could change some of these independence, energy independence balances. We did an analysis. I've been working on this for several years now. And, and there's a link here that goes into detail on the assumptions. The U.S. might actually need the same amount of natural gas in 2035, roughly, as it uses today. 
And if that's right, the only remaining questions are whether that energy is produced in the United States or imported from Qatar, Russia, Canada, and places like that, and how it all impacts the reliability of supply and price and national security. If you're surprised that our analysis concluded that the U.S. is going to have roughly the same natural gas reliance in 2035 as it does today, go ahead and take a look at the link where we show a deep dive on our assumptions. There's a lot of work you have to do on something like this, and we spell out our assumptions. If other people have diff very different views, I'd love to hear them. Uh, we lay out our forecast for wind and solar capacity growth, um, which is in the 90th percentile of capacity additions since 1960. Uh, we lay out transmission growth uh, est estimates, uh, wind and solar capacity factors for large footprints. What do we think is going to happen with coal-fired power plants, nuclear power plants, hydropower? Uh, we have our estimates for electrification of passenger vehicles, light trucks, and heavy trucks. Um, uh, we even have some data in here on compressed natural gas penetration with trucks and buses. Um, we talk about our expectations for trend primary energy and electricity use, and we even get into uh, a somewhat of a cutting-edge topic, which is what's going to happen with all the municipalities that are pressuring commercial and residential buildings to move away from electric baseboard heating and fossil fuel combustion for heating uh, uh, into heat pumps. And so we make assumptions about heat pump adoption as well. Uh, and then lastly, we have some data in here on electrification of industry. The bottom line is you have to lay out that entire complex of issues if you're going to make an assumption about what kind of natural gas reliance the U.S. is going to have in 2035 based on our analysis, it doesn't look that different in the future than it looks right now. If that's the case, you have to think very carefully about starving that industry of capital uh, because, again, all you're going to do is drive prices up and increase United States dependence on other parts of the world. I concluded the piece with a brief discussion of what's happening in Europe right now there's been a large COVID inspection, infection spike in Belgium and Netherlands and Germany. As a matter of fact, for Netherlands and Germany, the reported infections have hit their highest level since the pandemic began. It's a little early to make a final judgment, but I'm going to take a glass half full view here. Um, the high levels of European vaccination and some improved healthcare protocols have sharply reduced the degree to which COVID infections have resulted in hospitalization and mortality over time. We have a table that shows those declining factors, both for Europe and the U.S. If that pattern remains, the latest infection spike uh, will be disruptive, but have much less severe healthcare and economic consequences for Europe. And if, if I had to summarize, it looks like the efficacy of vaccines in preventing COVID from inhabiting your respiratory system fade over time, which is why um, we're seeing some vaccinated people actually get infected, uh, particularly versus the Delta variant. But even so, the vaccine efficacy remains really high in preventing pulmonary and neurological damage, which is what puts people in the hospital or worse. So again, the vaccines look to have some fading effectiveness against a respiratory infection that registers as you having COVID, but is not resulting in, in those more negative outcomes in hospitalization mortality. And there's plenty of data from multiple sources showing how hospitalization and mortality rates are much higher among unvaccinated people. Um, we actually have some of this on our COVID portal. And so I, I was recuperating from surgery, which I'll talk about in a minute. And I watched this Aaron Rodgers 
uh, interview where he rejected the premise that the U.S. is experiencing a pandemic of the unvaccinated. He called it a total lie before talking some nonsense about ivermectin. Look, this is willful ignorance. Um, the data is there if people just want to take a look at it. Uh, and if you want to listen to professional athletes on COVID, you should read Kareem Abdul-Jabbar article on what he thinks of, Roger, of Roger's arguments and logic instead. So with all of that, I wanted to wish all of you a happy Thanksgiving, and in particular, Rachel. Um, around three weeks ago, I had a freak accident while I was on a fishing expedition and um, got a tibial plateau fracture. So I fractured my right knee and tore my meniscus. Um, and so Rachel's been taking very good care of me for the last three weeks and will be doing so for the next eight. I expect to be walking again sometime in January and hopefully back in my kayak to fish again by April. So happy Thanksgiving, everybody, and I look forward to seeing many of you in the new year. Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblis is the chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.